sci-fi voices of shows and people that we might forget. So if you hadn't thought of Dollhouse, Classic Battlestar, or Babylon 5 in a while, you gotta listen in. It's a sci-fi diner classic, voices from a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. It's a sci-fi diner classic, bringing you voices from the past. No, we ain't here there. It's a sci-fi diner classic. Don't give me no news. Just give me interviews and nothing else. No, nothing else. Hey, welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Classic. And uh, with me is Miles McLaughlin. How are you doing, Miles? I'm doing fine, thank you. And uh, my name's Scott Herzog. We're the host of the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Have been for quite some time. Mm-hmm. We're old farts, I guess, in this industry. I'm not sure. And I guess it makes sense that we're talking about the good old days of the Sci-Fi Diner, right? I guess if you hit 100 episodes, uh, we're getting a little old. Yeah, and, uh, you know, again, if you're new to the classic, we've only done, what, two, three of these maybe? And this will be our third or fourth one. And what we're doing is we're going back to some of our old episodes, you know, that... You know, the interviews are still dynamite in them, but, sure. but you know, the news is old. The news is two years old, and he wants to listen to two-year-old news to get right. to an interview. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to bring out the interview. And tonight, we're interviewing someone that's still relevant, Michael, uh, Michael Strutt from uh, NeoFX. Right. He's, um, he, he has lent his talents to um, well, first to Starship, folks at Starship Farragut. And um, also to uh, our friends, uh, Brown Coats Redemption. And um, he also lent some of his talents to um, the, uh, the makers of the movie, uh, Yesterday Was a Lie. Oh, yeah. And then Phase 2. Does he do anything with Phase 2? No. he. I, I, well, at least the last time we talked to him, he was not. They had their own people uh, doing yeah, that yeah. CGI for them. But, um, but yeah. Right. So, uh, um, yeah. He's a, he's, he's a, him and his team are, are a fantastic group of uh, CGI artists. And... You know, that's what some of the, some of the things you could see. It, well, there's on on their website is a, um, a little flash movie about you know some of the work they've done in the past. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. And we just had a really good interview. And originally, when we aired this interview, this interview came out I think episode twenty seven or twenty eight, something like that. And we split it into two parts because it was a pretty long interview. But we're combining it into one whole part. You've got the complete interview here for free, no charge. Right, <laughs> and, uh, but just uh, you know, they'll hear a little bit of it. He'll hint at the fact that he's doing something in the future with the Brown Coats Redemption. He may not call it by that name. We of course know that in the past two years, Brown Coats Redemption came out, and uh, in fact, we're going to be talking with Mike in, in a few weeks here. Uh, very cool. Yeah. So, anyways, you know, anything else you want to say? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, another thing. Um, there was um, another thing he 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 uh, led his talents for was a project to do bring. Star Trek back, the animated Star Trek back, uh, but he did it with the, with the, with the crew of uh, Farragut, and so right. those two episodes of uh, uh, the animated uh, Star Trek Farragut episodes, he talks uh, in detail about which is very interesting. Yep, so it was phenomenal. So we hope that you enjoy this interview, this interview that we have from Michael Strutt from NeoFX. See you later.
you know Captain Carter and the crew of the USS Farragut. But you have never seen them like this. After 35 years, animated Star Trek is back. Neo Effects and Farragut Films present Starship Farragut, the animated episodes. Damn the torpedoes. Warp speed ahead. This is Michael. Hey, Michael, this is Scott. Hey, Scott, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you this evening? Oh, not too bad. With me is Miles. Hi, Mike. It's nice to meet you. Hey, Miles. Yeah. Great to meet you too. Yeah, well, we actually we actually found out about you. Well, we we watched the Starship Farragut productions for oh quite some time here. Miles uh-huh. has been a fan for a couple years now. I actually met you um, probably back in two thousand six at a, a Farpoint convention. I think it was when you guys were you know getting started with your project. Um, yep. So well, that was cool. Yeah, it was. It was funny. Uh, John Broughton from uh, Farragut was just at the uh, creation convention in uh, New Jersey, and he got a opportunity to sit down with uh, Richard Arnold, who was uh, Gene Roddenberry's assistant for uh, so many years. Oh, wow. And he just asked him a couple, uh, you know, just a couple questions, and the interview ended up lasting an hour long. And he's trying to make it only four minutes, so I, I know, <laughs> I know that he's going to have some trouble uh, editing and, and everything. But uh, yeah, it was uh, some good information. He and I uh, like talking a little bit about his blog. Uh, it's mycaptainslog.com or something like yeah. that. I get on. Yeah. But something that John just started recently, he's getting into the 20, 21st century now with, yeah. uh, with the captain's blog. So it, uh, it's pretty interesting. But I've, I've met Richard Arnold in the past uh, down in uh, California, and he's a great guy. Always has a fantastic story about how things, uh, you know, on Star Trek ended up turning into reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, great. Well, we want to get a little bit more information about your interest in Star Trek, your interest in sci-fi in just a little bit. Why don't we start off okay. by uh, talking a little bit about how did you get into animation? And tell us a little bit maybe in the process about uh, how Neo FX kind of got formed. Okay. Well, uh, Neo FX has been around since uh, 2003, uh, as a just an animation company that does a lot of things like you know, simple things like logos, things that are the kind of the bread and butter of an animator. A lot of people don't get to work on full-length movies and features and things like that, so you end up having to make your bread and butter from you know editing wedding videos and putting text on wedding videos and then expanding to that to training videos and things like that. And we were always interested in doing... Uh, uh, not only visual effects for movies, but also for uh, Star Trek in particular, just because we're huge fans. And, uh, you know, this is not like uh, when you're going out and looking for a job where you start doing the job for free and then somebody goes and discovers you and then you get hired. Unfortunately, in the visual effects industry, that's kind of how you have to do it. You have to kind of prove your wares before you can actually do things uh, that are a little bit higher caliber. So what we ended up doing is just a kind of as a proof of concept. This is about uh, 2003 when, uh, you know, there was rumblings in Paramount about there being a remaster of the uh, the original Star Trek. Mm. So what we did is we took a, an episode, very similar to what a lot of people had done before us, and took an episode, this one happened to be Space Seed, 
and redid the visual effects on them, cut out everything that had to do with 1960s uh, special effects and put in new CGI. And then in, also in the, in the interim, since editing and, and storytelling has changed in the last few years, we ended up re-editing the whole episode, adding a little few extra parts that went along with uh, you know, uh, the Wrath of Khan, and then just start sending that out to everybody. You know, it was a labor of love type project. And uh, we ended up sending it, uh, ironically, to the people who were doing the visual effects for uh, Enterprise at that time. Uh, that's Eden. That would be Eden FX down in uh, California. Okay. But, uh, you know, they had already heard the rumbling that, you know, the Star Trek wasn't going to be on TV forever. So, uh, but we kept doing it. We kept refining our, our product. And then we started uh, seeing things on the Internet start popping up, uh, like Star Trek New Voyages. And uh, I actually sent an email to the director at the time, uh, Jack Marshall, and you know he invited me out to see what they were doing out there in uh, Ticonderoga, New York. And I went out there and I was blown away by, you know, standing on the bridge of the Enterprise, and uh, you know I came to find out that their that their special effects artist was you know this, this pseudonym of Max Rim, who ended up being Doug Drexler. Uh, so, and he was one of the, the, the visual effects artists that had worked on some of the previous episodes of, uh, Star Trek, you know, Next Generation, uh, Deep Space Nine, things like that. Hmm. And they were pretty impressed with my work. Unfortunately, with already having a visual effects artist, they had, uh, no need for, uh, any other additional help, at least at that time. But at that exact same time, there was a person uh, named Paul Sieber who was working with New Voyages. And he had uh, had an inkling of starting a new ship very similar to uh, the Enterprise, and they were going to call it the Farragut. So uh, Jack Marshall shared our uh, quote-unquote demo reel, which has just ended up being uh, you know, space seed with new special effects, and Paul immediately gave us a call, and then that's how basically Star Trek Far- uh, Starship Farragut started, was with us providing uh, you know the visual effects for it, and then we got more into... Uh, you know, helping them edit it, uh, you know, flesh out stories a little bit more. And they, in turn, helped us with developing what they wanted their look of, uh, of their 23rd century to look like. Hmm. Now, it uh, now their 23rd century obviously models pretty closely or uh, aligns pretty closely to the original track. Is that correct? Uh, it, for the most part. Uh, what we like to consider it is if... if uh, uh, you know, if Star Trek had been done today, you know, not uh, not to bring in J.J. J. Abrams' Trek or anything, but if the if the the blueprint was already there, how would it look today if they use conventional special effects? And and what it ends up looking like is a lot like what Next Generation, Voyager, and Enterprise end up looking like. And uh, as you know, chance would have it, we actually use the same software that the companies that did the special effects for those television programs. Uh, Used so we were using we're using the exact same thing so we were able to get a very similar look at it with the you know a primary uh, light you know in space somewhere with star fields and kind of the more of the shadowing as opposed to the 1960s thing where everything was kind of brightly lit and oversaturated. Hmm. Yeah. I, I take it more like what the the Star Trek the motion picture looked like in that they went for almost hyper realism in some of their uh, lighting shots to where it was almost too dark. Uh, we kind of mirror that with it being space and it's dark, but we've gotten to balance that with some of the fundamentals from TOS 
which are kind of, you know, you get to see some of the detail of the ship. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, so I guess it'd be safe to say you would definitely describe yourself as a sci-fi fan. Right, right. And, you know, nobody gets into special effects, at least doing special effects for, uh, for things like Star Trek or without, you know, referencing back to when they were a kid and, and seeing this stuff on television and, and just wishing they could be a part of it. And in some small way, we were because we ended up, you know, catching the eye of some of the producers of uh, things that end up being more like real Trek, like uh, Star Trek of Gods and Men, right. which had some of the original Trek uh, actors. And, and there was a surreal moment when I, uh, when I first got the assignment. I was working on a phaser shot, and sitting there, you know, in front of me on my computer screen was Walter Koenig. And I thought to myself, for just a moment, it's like, I'll be damned, I'm working on real Star Trek, finally. <laughs> I'll bet. Oh, wow. I'll bet. Now, now for Of Gods and Men, did you do uh, most of the effects? Did NeoFX do all the, effect, the effects of Of Gods and Men or just some of them? No, we actually came in uh, late in the game. We, were, uh, we had been given a preliminary script uh, long before the project ever started. And it's not so much that we passed on it, but it was just something that seemed like it was more of a, of a pie in the sky. It, there were a lot of changes from the initial script to where they ended up shooting. Uh, they went through a lot of writers and uh, producers. Uh, we came in at about Act 2. So everything beyond Act 2 uh, that has to do with uh, phaser fire, the morphing effect by their uh, by one of their characters, and the 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 bright eyes of uh, Gary Mitchell were all done by us. Okay. okay. The CGI for the ships and everything else was already established. And while we could have done that, you, the the cardinal rule of a movie is consistency. So they wanted consistency throughout the the entire episode. And up until Act Two, they had not had any phaser effects bright eyes or any morphing effects so that all happened in act two so they were they were confident that uh bringing somebody else new in wouldn't uh, mess with their with their uh their production pipeline yeah and to keep it to keep a continuation as far as the style of effects and everything it kind of allowed that Correct. to happen so yeah there have been people who who you know say that they love the visual effects or some people who who don't do, did not like especially the uh the starship models and you know as being a cgi guy i could notice you know, right off the bat that there were a lot of different people working on this because the style did intermittently change. However, there is a certain consistency that goes out throughout the whole, uh, throughout the whole film, and whether you agree with it or not, at least they, they kept their cardinal rule of keeping things relatively consistent. Now, when you work on a project like Star Trek of Gods and Men, is it just, mm-hmm. is it just you? Do you have a team of people helping you? I mean, how, how big of a group is NeoFX? Well, it's kind of interesting. You'll ask it, you know, a lot of times you'll ask what, how many people are at ILM or, you know, how many people are at Eden FX. And there's always a core set of people that are there, the management, uh, the people that run the, the show, uh, behind the scenes, the sales folks. Uh, but then the animators, you know, they, they, they can grow and shrink based on how many projects they have in, in their pipeline. And if you take that model and you shrink it down to, uh, you know, some people who do what we do, you know, we, we have the same exact same thing. It's not that we have a constant staff of animators, but we have a, a pool of animators that we can draw from depending on the size of the project. And everybody works freelance in, in the visual effects industry pretty much without uh, exception. So you are technically the only employee of NeoFX? 
technically, yes. <laughs> With a bunch of other people helping you out. So. Absolutely, and, yeah. and you know, and then nobody, you know, uh, nobody works for free. So it, it's it it it's up to me basically to bring in the work and then pool it out as I see fit, uh, or as necessity uh, dictates on you know just how much we have to do. Has um has doing Starship Farragut helped you get you know some other jobs um, now that now people take notice of Starship Farragut? Has that maybe given you some business? You know. A, you know it has, and it's kind of uh, it's almost like what Leonard Nimoy uh, you know will, will tell a story about is he'll he'll talk about how he ended up being typecast as Spock for a long time, and he actually wrote a few books that actually dealt with him not being Spock, and then him coming to a, a final realization that at the end of the day he developed that character Spock is him and he is Spock, and in the same way we've come through that same progression with Neo FX is that. While we don't want to be known as the the guys who will do uh, you know just Starship Farragut, Starship this, you know Fair Exeter, Gods of Men, uh, what it comes down to is that we're really good at that, and that has allowed us to do other things that have built upon it. For example, uh, talking about a progression of of events, you know, one thing leading to another. Uh, so I worked on Gods of Men with Jack Trevino. This is almost like the uh, the Oracle of Bacon. You know, everybody's related to to Kevin Bacon in some ways. Right. So, I uh, you know I worked on Gods of Men with Jack Trevino, who was a uh, a writer on Deep Space Nine, which starred Chase Masterson, who is also in uh, of Gods and Men, who now is part of our animated episodes, but she also produced a movie uh, called uh, Yesterday Was a Lie. Which we also worked on. <laughs> right, I saw that on your site. It, now, is that movie yeah. is that movie out yet? What happened is, is that was that's almost like a uh, I don't know. The director will probably shoot me for saying this, but it, it, <laughs> it, that's kind of uh, almost like a fan film as it is. But it had potential to be something else. It wasn't something that had a subject matter that was licensed and copyrighted by Paramount or anything. It was an original idea. But again, going back to the whole concept of you have to do things for free first and then get noticed in, in this industry as opposed to you know, somebody taking a chance on you. What happened is that this director, uh, producer, uh, wrote this movie, and he ended up you know, funding it himself and bringing in a couple investors with the hopes that it would be picked up by a distributor. And I don't think I'm – he actually released some information saying that he finally got a distributor. So everybody who worked on it uh, you know, as a favor, as it were, or a volunteer – uh, you know, we all sign contracts on where we can get paid now because he has a distributor and has the money to uh, recoup his costs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it's a very, cool. very interesting movie. Yeah, it is. A, it's a very interesting movie, and, and you'd be surprised on who's in that. I mean, uh, I was watching some of the, the the footage of it, and I noticed this guy that looked vaguely familiar to me. And I looked through the credits, and lo and behold, it's the guy who played Chewbacca on Star Wars. Oh, Peter, Peter Mayhew. Mayhew. Peter Mayhew. Yeah. 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 Wow, yeah, that's so. A, yeah, there's, a, yeah, it, and again, it's a small world type thing, uh, but it, it's it's kind of neat to be able to look back and say, hey, I worked with the guy who played Chewbacca on Star Wars, <laughs> even though you know I've never met the guy or anything. But you know, who would have thought, you know, four or five years ago that I would have, you know, like Tim Russ and Chase Masterson's phone numbers in my in my uh, in my phone to give him <laughs> a call if I wanted to. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's kind of cool. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, 
uh, we, we, we kind of touched on this briefly and then kind of moved on from it. But let's, I want to delve into this a little bit more. You said that you obviously were influenced uh, by sci-fi as a young kid. What was the sci-fi that, that kind of gripped you, that kind of drew you into the world of science fiction? What were some of the shows uh, that, that kind of did, did that for you? Well, basically, basically anything that had to do with uh, with science fiction. Obviously, Star Trek is is right there on top of of things. Uh, you know, I was born in the '60s, so there's uh, there are a few things to go off of. You know, the things that I do remember, and then you get into the space 1999, uh, the original Battlestar Galactica, and then you get into the time frame of Star Wars, and uh, you know. Uh, all kinds of, of good things. I think Star Trek, yeah, 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 as much as a cliche as it sounds, it was really my biggest motivation to do things. I mean, I don't know of any kid at that time that didn't enjoy science fiction that didn't go and dress him up himself up like Spock or or uh, you know the Captain or something like that, and pretend that they had a bridge or something in their basement. Uh-huh. And so, uh, do I dare ask what character you dressed up as? <laughs> Oh, I, I'm I'm tall, thin, and have bl- dark hair, so I'll let you, I'll let you make the guess. <laughs> oh man, I man. couldn't I couldn't possibly imagine. Man, that. I'm struggling here. I am. <laughs> I'm really. You're making me work. <laughs> but you probably ran the science station or something, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. But well, I, you know, I, and you know, I didn't get overly into it to where I was. Uh, I had my dad build me some wood props, if that means anything. I didn't build a, a you know science station or anything else like that, but I do. <laughs> Uh, recall, unfortunately, there's no pictures of it. My mother putting some kind of eye makeup on me so that I'd have the the, the pointed eyebrows and and things. But uh, <laughs> like I said, that that's not the that's not the cover of my Facebook page. So no, that's no. good. <laughs> no. And thankfully, there's no evidence of that. So exactly, except, except for except, except for this show. So now, <laughs> yeah, and and you and you have a huge uh, listenership, right? Right, so, right, right, uh, right, right. So everyone will know. <laughs> <laughs> But you are, I mean, if I understand, if I heard correctly, you're going to be putting on some makeup again. Um, is it true you, you'll be playing a character of, of Thalen for uh, uh, Starship Farragut for their, for, for their next um, live action episode? Yeah, yeah, that's a kind of a nasty rumor. Did John tell you that? Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll never tell. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but so the fourth type of communication method outside of the internet is tell John, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> oh, we love well, John dearly, but yeah, yeah. That, that's a, that's an interesting concept. I, uh, you know, that goes back to the the whole animated episodes that we're doing that are that are based off of filmation. Um, there, ironically, Phelan was just a, a you know a one time a one use character, which was kind of strange for filmation just in itself because. Uh, filmation was all about recycling. Uh, even before you know the Earth turned green and everything, they were all about reusing things over and over and over and over again. Uh, but it was ironic that uh, that Thalen was only used once. And uh, you know, the, I don't know why it is, but I, I kind of felt that that character needed a little bit more of a of a background. And when I was going to do the animated episodes, uh, you know, I had a, I had that character in mind. You know, very similar to that that red character, Eric's, that was on the bridge of the Enterprise. They never did explain number one where Chekhov was, but they never also explained what the background of this character was. He was just there one day, and so I thought that would be kind of uh, interesting since uh, Farragut didn't have any sort of uh, didn't have any sort of aliens, uh, you know, on their on their bridge, and that's for obviously practical reasons, just because it you know costs money to to purchase makeup and apply it and everything else. 
So, but I thought that Thalen would be an interesting character, and that that would work well with Star Trek canon, which seems to be the big thing that fans really want to, uh, you know, for anything to adhere to is the canon. Uh, you know, Phase Two ended up killing Chekhov in one of their episodes, and they got nothing but grief for it, even though that. the story was <laughs> relatively, relatively decent. So, fans love canon. So, there's nothing in canon that forbids Thalen to be in there, and I think. With J.J. Abrams' movie out, I think that's the big important thing is not so much following canon as making sure that canon doesn't deny what you're putting on the screen. Mm-hmm. So in that same way, Thalen is a uh, you know, character that you know, is on the surrogate. Why? Well, we don't really go into it, uh, but what it comes down to is that when he was shown in the original animated episodes, he was in an alternate timeline because Kirk and Spock had messed up the timeline and you know, there was an alternate reality. Uh, created. So when they fixed the reality, Thalen's gone. Well, the theory would have it that, that Thalen had to have existed somewhere and a certain set of events put him on the Enterprise. Well, with the original timeline fixed, probably some of that stuff still happened in the alternate timeline or in the, in the original timeline, but Thalen didn't get to go there. Why not put him on the Farragut? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so uh, we ended up you know, brainstorming a little bit about it. You know, got the buy-in from the uh, uh, the Farragut folks, and then it came time to figure out who would voice that character. And this is before we cast anybody, but I knew that that character had to be on the bridge of the uh, of the Farragut. So I started looking, and I looked back at the original. It was voiced by James Doohan, who ended up doing practically all the voices that were not the main characters on the uh, on the original animated episode. And I thought to myself, well, it's a shame that uh, James Doohan isn't around. And then I, you know, it just kind of just dawned on me. It's like, why don't I talk to his son, find out what he was, uh, what he's doing these days? You know, got in touch with him, and uh, you know, he agreed. He does a dead-on impression of his dad doing an impression of Scotty, if that means anything. <laughs> but he also does a pretty mean, uh, mean Thalen too. And I don't mean uh, violent, but I mean a very dead-on impersonation of what his dad did for that character. Hmm. So we uh, we developed that, and he, he he did a fantastic job, I have to say, on uh, on doing what his dad did. Uh, but then we started talking about you know in the Farragut about doing it for a live action uh, type thing and what that would take. So, you know, being in the quote unquote entertainment industry now, I actually know a few makeup artists. So I had a, uh, a you know just as almost a as a, as a lark uh, had a set of uh, antenna and uh, a, a wig made up. And then it started going on and on and on about, well, let's, let's see if Chris would be willing to do a live-action version. And he lives on the West Coast, Farragut's on the East Coast, so he really wasn't really interested in doing a, you know, a traveling thing like a lot of the Phase 2 folks were doing. And somebody suggested that I do it. And we've been tinkering with the idea, and I think that it might actually work. <laughs> um, I'm by no means an actor. <laughs> right. Uh, but if you if you look at a lot of the the fan stuff, a lot of these guys aren't actors, and they you know they find their their voice, and it is what it is. And you know maybe maybe I can do it, maybe I can't. I don't know. I you never know until you try. So right. I think we might give it a I think we might actually give it a try and see what it's like. And you know if anything, I can I can take the original stuff out and put CGI in if it ends up being looking terrible. Right, right, right. <laughs> but you'll be bringing the first alien crew member on Farragut, so that that, that that's cool. Correct, correct. I mean, they always had Spock on the Enterprise, which is kind of a few, you know, with ears and, you know, eye makeup and there's your alien. I think this one would be a little least a little bit more interesting. It wouldn't be the first time that, uh, 
you know, an Andorian would have been on the bridge. Uh, as everyone knows, Exeter, another fan film, also has uh, a character called Bafuzlak, who is, uh, you know, on the bridge as a communications officer. Right. I, I, I'm familiar with Exeter. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure it's going to be a great experience for you, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in that role and at least uh, seeing you try that role. So. Yeah, so it'll be, be interesting, and unfortunately, it's not it's not the captain or uh, you know first officer. So I'd be a, I would almost demand that I would be a supplementary character. That nothing be you know a story based on me. I wouldn't have number one the, the time to do it like that. But I right. don't. You know, I, I I'm a very humble person when it comes to my acting ability because I know that I don't have any uh, acting experience. So. I'm not willing to put myself out there in that fashion. I know that I can do the visual effects in the background, and I really wouldn't want to distract from that. But it might be, you know, like I said, fun as a lark to do, to kind of do it. Oh, and you're a fan of the you're you're, you're a fan of the genre, so and that, yeah, exactly. that, oh, yeah. that plays into it. So and who who would not right. I mean, a fan of the genre would not want to be on an episode of Star Trek? I mean, that's you know every fanboy's dream. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you get you get to live out your uh, this whole you know fantasy that you have as kids being on a Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's something that's been, something to be said for that. Well, right. Right. We've been talking a lot about the animation part of it. Now, the way that you we saw part one and part two just hit the internet. Uh, what this past week is that correct? Of the animated episode, yeah. Yeah, and then, and we have a part three that we're waiting for. Is that correct? Correct, and yeah. part three should be out by the end of this uh, this month, being August. Okay, well, we're gonna this interview will probably air next week, so hopefully, we'll be in anticipation of that. But let's. Um, okay. I want to talk a little bit about the style of animation and and what you were looking back to, and 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 how closely you tried to replicate the original uh, animated series of Star Trek. Can you talk a little bit about okay. that? Absolutely. Well, let, let's let's go back and talk a little bit about the the original animated uh, Star Trek because I think that has a lot of parallels to uh, what we did. As everyone knows, you know, Star Trek was on TV from what 1966 to 1969, three years. Um, it, it developed quite a fan base. One of the big, uh, let's call it, complaints that that people had about it is that there wasn't a lot of money. Uh, network TV is never about you know, doing it for the love of it. It's for selling commercials and, you know, selling soap and body odor, deodorant or whatever. But they didn't have a lot of money at that time. Uh, and there was a lot of, but it was good science fiction. There were a lot of people who wanted to see it continue. Uh, they brought it back as a Saturday morning cartoon. It ended up being developed by a company called Filmation in uh, Southern California there. And Paramount obviously endorsed it. Uh, Gene Roddenberry was involved, but it was more of a filmation uh, venture. And uh, one of the one of the guys who uh, started filmation, uh, you know, uh, Lou Scheimer. None of these guys were fans, so you'll you'll notice that in some of the animation that they do, people's ranks change. You know, Star Trek fans obviously notice these things. Ranks change, the color of their uniform change. Suddenly Spock has six fingers as opposed to five. Little things like that. Uh, however, what they did do, and I think it's one of the bigger successes of uh, the original animated episodes, were that they didn't scrimp on the stories. They brought back a lot of the same writers. Uh, D.C. Fontaine uh, was, ended up being a uh, editor, uh, I think, of the, of the animated episodes. Uh, and she was really big. She wrote some of the, the more famous 
uh, you know, original Star Trek episodes. So there were a lot of people who submitted stories, including Walter Koenig, who didn't get to appear on the animated episodes. So let's fast forward to uh, Farragut and look at some of the parallels. Well, Farragut is a live-action fan project uh, spearheaded by Farragut Films, John Broughton, and, and that gang. We've always been a film uh, filmation kind of fan, but we've also felt that we were we would have the ability to do our own fan film uh, if we wanted to. So it was kind of great that we ended up working with Farragut Films because they gave us the opportunity to take that to the into the third dimension to the second dimension and make it you know uh, basically a, a filmation style cartoon. But since we were spearheading this as opposed to Farragut Films, all I would need from the Farragut crew is their voices. I don't need any sets. I don't need any uh, costumes. I don't need any makeup. Uh, so let's, you know, we were going to do this. So, again, we developed what characters would be on there. We kept uh, the majority of the main crew, uh, you know, the, the four big top people, Carter, Smithfield, Tackett, and Prescott. Uh, the communications offers officers, the person that you see in the very first episode of the captaincy, and the doctor and the chief engineer are played by the same people. Other than that, we had open, you know, characters for security, uh, and then a helm and navigation person. Okay. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to take this to the, to the next level. Uh, one of the big limitations of original Star Trek, as I mentioned, was the money situation. And in, in a fan film, that even becomes more, and excuse the pun, paramount, uh, <laughs> because fan films have no money to, you know, to do some of the adventures that you know some of these writers uh, would want to do. You know, again, Thalen would be an expensive character to do as just a one-off, just because it takes a lot of time and makeup just to get the character looking right. Right. So, in an animation uh, format, you don't have those limitations. So, what we did is we, you know, developed who the crew would be. But then I wanted to take it kind of to the next level. Everybody's done a fan film, it seems. If you go on the internet and look up fan films, everybody's doing one from before, you know, Kirk and Spock to all the way past, you know, uh, the next generation. So everybody seems to be doing a fan film, but I think one of the things that uh, a lot of those fan films kind of miss is the opportunity to bring in real actors. Everybody wants to play the captain. Everybody wants to be on screen, even if they, you know, they may not be suited for it. They may not be actors. They may not be physically uh, the, the right shape to be what people would consider a captain or, or whatever. So we want to do something with a little bit more, I don't know, you know notoriety, and not just, just do it ourselves, because in animation, you could do that. You could, you could be every voice out there. As long as you're able to change it, you could do it. But we wanted to bring in some some professional actors, and uh, that's a, that's a whole other story about how we had to join uh, the Screen Actors Guild in order to do that because you just can't give an actor a call on the phone and say, "Hey, you want to record this line for me?" There's all kinds of formalities that you have to go through. Right. And I I have to hand it to Chase Masterson, you know, and just because I happen to know Jack Trevino from working on Of Gods and Men, he kind of introduced me to Chase, and she kind of really. I have to hand it to her, spearheaded, helping us get into the Screen Actors Guild so that we could hire them to uh, do these voices. Oh, wow. But then, it's, yeah, but then once you get into that kind of inner circle, or at least on the, in my case, the boundaries of the inner circle, 
uh, you end up, it, it kind of snowballs. So first we got Chris Doohan, who is, is, you know, he works at Kaiser Permanente down in California. He's not a professional actor by trade, but he's wanted to get into it just obviously because of his, uh, you know, his upbringing and seeing, you know, his, one of his best friends is Danny Bonaducci. And I got a whole other story about that when we were in the recording studio and, and Danny almost came in and, uh, uh, you know, recorded a couple lines, but unfortunately he was out of town. But anyway, we had Chris doing almost from the beginning after we contacted them, and then Chase came on board. After Chase came on board, they were my two biggest advocates for bringing in other folks that could really take this uh, take this project to the next level. So after that, we ha- ended up uh, being contacted, you know, on a reference from Chase Masterson, uh, getting in touch with Vic uh, Monyana. It's a strange spelling of his name, but. Uh, he, he isn't really related in any way to Star Trek, as it were, but he's a big anime uh, voiceover artist. And in this kind of industry, uh, with animation, you really want dynamic uh, folks who can do the voices. Right. It's, it's one thing, and that's one of the kind of the criticisms of actually the animated, uh, the original animated Star Trek episodes is that you know, everybody knows that Shatner is a quote-unquote character. Uh, in real life, he's, he's just a character. Unfortunately, some of that personality didn't come over as well when he was just reading the lines for Kirk. You couldn't see him, and obviously the animation was so uh, primitive, as it were, at the time, that the, you know, some of the nuances of Captain Kirk didn't come through with the, uh, with the animated character. And we're actually getting a little bit of that same grief with the, uh, uh, the original cast. They're not voiceover actors. They're not actors in the first place. But it, it felt right to have them in the same roles that they played as a uh, as a live action character. Uh, but in order for some of the supplementary characters to really have some oomph, uh, we needed to bring in somebody who had experience doing that. And actually, Chase had had some uh, voiceover experience, as had uh, Vic, who had a lot of voiceover experience. As a matter of fact, he plays about two or three different characters in the in the episode, and he can't even tell he's just that good. Uh, and then the the. The final person that came in was kind of a lark as well. Uh, yeah, I'd been emailing back and forth, Jack, and all the stuff, and I got an opportunity. I, I booked a, a recording studio down in L.A., and I was going down there, and this is at the same time that the Burbank uh, Star Trek convention was going on. I, I, can't remember if it's a con- I can't remember if it's a creation or whatever, but needless to say, I thought, you know what? I'm going down there. Let me see if, you know, Tim Russ you know, who was the, the director of, of Gods and Men, would be available to do a line. You know, the old adage of, you know, you never know what people are going to say until you ask them, and the worst thing that they can say is no. Right. That is the worst thing. The worst thing is that they could say no, and you're no worse off than you had been. But the, the good thing is that a lot of times these guys are willing to help out. And Tim Russ, I have to say, is probably one of the biggest Star Trek fans himself, uh, than, than any other actor I've ever met because he loves doing this stuff. He loves producing, he loves directing, and, and he's a good actor, too. So we had this Vulcan character, and it was going to be played by somebody else, probably Chase if we couldn't find anybody else, but it was just a Vulcan character. It didn't have to be male, didn't have to be female. I emailed Tim one day asking him about some visual effects on Of God the Men, and I mentioned our project. Lo and behold, he was getting into voiceover acting, and a lot of a lot of actors love voiceover work just because they don't have to get into makeup. Uh, they can sit down, do their lines, and then walk away with a check. Hmm. So, 
it was kind of a lark. He was going to be at the convention anyway. We arranged it, and he shows up, does his line, sit down, he gets his check, and he walks away. But it ended up being great. He's, a, he's a, kind of a one-take kind of guy. Hmm. So uh, we got into that. And then the big thing for me, uh, obviously it's a big thing to be working with these actors. Uh, and I think this is another thing that a lot of the fan films kind of miss, is that they're, they are playing in somebody else's uh, sandbox, as it were. Star Trek is a licensed property. Right. Uh, and obviously none of these fan films can make any money. Uh, but it would be nice to at least get an endorsement. And I, I, I every day wish that Gene Roddenberry was around to be able to see what his, the thing that he created was doing and, and just to get his opinion on what he thinks of it. He may hate it, but then again, he may love it. Uh, one of the big things that I got to do being a Filmation fan was got to, I got to meet uh, Lou Scheimer. And that's, again, one of those things where if you don't ask, then the answer is always going to be no. But if you ask, sometimes the answer is going to be yes. Mm. My, so mother always said, uh, my mother always said you have not because you ask not. Exactly, exactly. So this, the story with that is almost surreal. I, you know, I was, we've gotten into the production of this thing. Uh, I was going down to L.A., and I thought to myself, you know, I wonder if Lou Scheimer's around. Actually, it came more about along the lines of uh, we were trying to track down the original music and sound effects from the animated episodes. We knew that, we knew that Sam Horta, one of the big cartoon uh, and sound guys in, uh, back in the 60s and 70s owned those original tapes. So I gave his daughter a call, and she said, well, I don't have those. You may want to call Lou Scheimer. So she gives me his home phone number, which wow. is kind of rare. It's kind of rare in L.A. as it is. Now, Lou Scheimer is 80 years old. He probably doesn't get a lot of people sitting at his front, you know, front door waiting for him to sign autographs. And he, he's very humble about his place in you know, animation history. But unfortunately... I don't think he, he fully appreciates it. Uh, you know, you go and do a search for, you know, people who really did groundbreaking work with getting animation being accepted as it is today, and you'll find three names, Hanna-Barbera, Walt Disney, and Lou Scheimer. Mm, and wow. I didn't, ex you know, again, you, if you expect nothing, then anything that happens is going to be, uh, you know, fantastic. So I left him a message. What do you know, half an hour later, I get a call, and he says, this is Lou Scheimer calling. It's like, wow, really? <laughs> oh, wow. Friendliest guy. It was like talking to my grandfather. We talked for practically an hour, and I said, hey, I'm going to be down in L.A. I, you know, I don't want to impose or anything. You want to come over and see my house? It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's directions on how you get here. And he gives me all these directions to, uh, to his house. And I, you know, I, I, the first thing everybody, I think, does is Google you know, an address to make sure that number one, they can get there. And number two, what it looks like so that they can expect it. And it looked like it was just a regular neighborhood. And I think, oh, okay, well, we'll do that. So I, I get in LA and I, and I follow these directions and I get to where his address is. And it's like an empty lot or what it looked like an empty lot. And it's like, oh man, oh. <laughs> <laughs> did I follow the wrong directions or something? Right. So I look at where the address is and there's a gate there. So uh, I, he, he did mention something about pressing a button on a gate or, you know, making sure that he hears. So I pressed the button, and he says, uh, yeah, there's low. It's like, eh, um, this is Michael. I, you know, I was, you know, he invited me over. Can we, oh, yeah, come on up. He opens his gate, and I think, okay, it's just around the corner. So I start going up this driveway and up and up and up, and I'll be damned if it wasn't just a giant 
house on top of a hill in a regular neighborhood in, in the middle of the, you know, the Hollywood Valley. Wow. And I was just blown away and I said, wow, cartoons pay really, really, really much. <laughs> <bad." laughs> Wow, and I'd never I'd never met Lou Scheimer before in my life. I'd seen uh, you know there's a there's a little featurette at the end of the animated episode cartoons where they feature him, and it was about four or five years ago that they filmed this. And he comes popping out of his house, little eighty year old man, not little. He's like six foot three, six foot four, but he comes popping out and greets me, and you know he he takes me up to his office, and this office is like if you're a collector of animated stuff and. Yeah, you know, Fat Albert, uh, Jason of Star Command. There's a there's a model of the original Jason of Star Command ship sitting there on his desk. Uh, wow. All kinds of stuff that I think you know a collector would probably just you know fall over dead with the amount of stuff that's in there. Just memorabilia. Uh, there was a robot that was on one of the episodes of the live action episode that was sitting there in one of his guest rooms. It's like wow. <laughs> wow. And then he says, you want to go to lunch? I'm buying. It's like, okay, we'll go to lunch. <laughs> so we sat at, you know, California Pizza Kitchen in, you know, Tarzana, California, you know, for two and a half hours talking about his history with animation. And the very last thing he said to me was, you know, this is a great project. You shouldn't be doing it for free, but, you know, you know, more power to you. And I completely endorse this thing. I'm glad that you guys are still looking at this stuff 35 years later and appreciating it. And it's like, Wow. That's the biggest compliment that I that somebody in my position could have outside of Gene Roddenberry coming up from the grave and, and endorsing, you know, uh, Farragut. Wow, absolutely! What and what an endorsement to get to get the one of the create, original creators behind it. That's yeah, uh, and, and, and you have to preface this though by him not giving me permission because he even said, you know, my endorsement doesn't mean Jack just because uh, you know he doesn't own the property rights to it. Paramount does. Right, and right. you know, Lou, Lou, Lou has some very uh, firm feelings towards big corporations that try to take, you know, the ideas and, and stuff and kind of mass market them and kind of take the love out of them. But outside of that, he uh, he completely endorses the concept of what we're doing and, and fully. He even recorded some lines uh, for our episodes that he's, you know, one of them is the original character that he played back in the original episodes. Oh, wow. So you actually have them in the animated series? Yeah. Uh, he, one of the things that, that happened a lot during the, uh, the filmation days, it was literally brute force animation. They had a lot of people drawing all the time. And, you know, t- deadlines were tight, very, very tight. Money was even tighter. And uh, you'll notice on some of the animated episodes, even though they're not credited, you have uh, uh, what's his name? Who played the 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 boss on Mary Tyler Moore? Ted Knight. Yeah, Ted Knight. Ted Knight played a few characters on there because he and and Lou has this fantastic story of when filmation was just getting started. He and Ted Knight were friends, and he had Ted Knight come in and sit in an animator's chair because they had investors coming in, and they wanted to make it look like they had a lot of people there, and they didn't know a lot of animators or people, so they just set people that happened to know down and said, "Draw something. Make it look like you're doing something." Wow. Uh, but Lou. And, and, you know, when, when times were tough and you, get, you couldn't get a voiceover artist or whatever, Lou would go and record his own. And uh, there's an episode called Practical Joker where the uh, there's a Romulan on the screen, and that's Lou Scheimer. And he did it. He did it uncredited. Uh, but that same Romulan, not the same one, it doesn't have to be the same one, but he, put, he basically we took that image 
and made it a character in one of our episodes. And Lou actually plays that character again. And it sounds just like him. Oh, wow. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Now, uh, now, obviously, 35, 40 years ago, they're working with different ways of animating the characters. Now, obviously, stylistically, you kind of adhered to the original animated series. Uh, but how is it different trying to capture that with modern technology versus what they were doing 30 years ago? You know, it is kind of ironic that you'd ask that because we have gotten a lot of flack lately. I, I'm not sure if it's just because we didn't, you know, express how we were going to do this or what it would look like. Some people were actually pretty amazed that we went with the filmation style of animation. And it, it, it seemed almost like a no-brainer to me. If you're going to do classic Trek and you're going to do a cartoon of classic Trek, it has to be filmation. That's what everybody would expect. You know, the same way that if we would have thrown original music on there as opposed to as opposed to using, uh, you know, the original soundtrack, you know, it wouldn't feel the same. So we wanted that same thing, even if it was over the top and redundant. This isn't meant to be any sort of new and revolutionary type of 3D cartoon or anything. It ends up being just a kind of a loving tribute to filmation. You're playing an homage but, to, you know, the original animation that was done 35 years ago with this. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, it, it, the original Star Trek uh, animated episodes were never, ever about, you know, break, groundbreaking animation. They were about telling good stories in a short amount of time to an audience that loved Star Trek. And mm -hmm. I think in that case, we're doing the exact same thing. We're, we're telling some really good stories. Uh, Jack Trevino and I wrote one story, and then I have a another writer uh, who is the president of Magic Productions down in Las Vegas write the other one, and that's the current one that's out right now is Power Source. So you have, uh, a, you have a second one in the works? Yeah, there's a, there's a second one, and we can get into that after, uh, after a little bit. But mm -hmm. uh, to get to your question about, the, uh, about the, the animation style, what we did is we took it and break it down. Because uh, you know, outside of the music, outside of the very stiff characters, I think what people remember most is the kind of stylistic... Uh, uh, you know, I guess stylistic style of filmation animation. Mm -hmm. And when you go and look at that practically frame by frame, like I've been doing for the last two years, you find out that they, they did things to, again, save money. Uh, a lot of times with the lip syncing, they only synced every other frame. So in a 24 frame per second uh, film, you only had to move the, the, the mouths 12 times during a frame instead of 24. I'm sorry, during a second. So those are some of the kind of the shortcuts that we tried to replicate. If you did a space shot, what you would do is you would have it move every frame because in the original animation, what you would do is you'd simply pull it across the screen while the camera was running full screen or whatever. So the big thing that I think people uh, do not know is how much work all of this is to create something that was created back in the 1970s. And we've kind of taken great, great strides That's to make it lot. look like it was, yeah, we've taken great strides to make it look like it came from the seventies. Uh, not so much that all the mistakes that they made, they were under a huge uh, amount of deadlines and, and time constraints. We're not under that same thing, but we made it. So we fixed some of the common editing problems that they had in the past and consistency problems, but really the, the spirit of the whole thing is still there. So oh, you'll have people, 
yeah, you'll you'll have the people move in a very similar fashion. The whole, uh, the, I think the one thing I always remembered from uh, the the show when I was a kid is just how they ran. It was such a stylistic where their their elbows would raise and then they would come forward towards the camera. And it's amazing when you break that down to see how they actually did it that you had animators who were redrawing each and every one of those frames. Now, we had the advantage of having two of the top uh, animated fan sites out there, StarTrekAnimated.com, run by Kale Teskar. And uh, he's actually one of our associate producers on this episode, and he's our main, main artist. He's dedicated practically the last 12 years of his life to figuring out exactly what I tried to figure out, which is how they did their characters, what, what, what kind of style did they use, uh, you know, how did, the, how did the characters move, how did the cells interact with each other, they, each animation cell uh, is on a separate you know, layer on a light board, and you just simply take a picture of it, move the cell, put a new one on, take a picture, on and on and on. Now, obviously, we're doing that uh, uh, you know, on a computer, so it's a lot quicker in some respects, but a lot of that stuff has to be pre-drawn, and that's a lot of what Kale has done is kind of capture the spirit of the characters, hmm. and then we send them off to other animators, very similar to what they did back in the uh, uh, back in the seventies. There, you'd have a good artist who would capture the essence of the character, and then you'd have some of these other artists do the lip movements and the the head turns and things like that. The other artist that we have uh, helping us out is uh, Kurt Dan Danhauser, who runs. DanHauserTrek.com, and he's actually gone and done a couple animated episodes himself using the original Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and he took uh, the route that we talked about uh, earlier where he did all the voices. Him and his wife and probably one other person did all the voices in there, and you can kind of tell, but he did a real good set of stories. Again, it had nothing to do with the animation. It had to do with the stories he was telling. So, uh, yeah, it was, the, the big thing was capturing the, the essence of the four main characters, Carter, Prescott, you know, Smithfield, and RT, or uh, Commander Tackett, and then getting other people to participate and do the things that we need, because Kale will be the first to admit that he's not a traditional artist. He can trace these characters or rotoscope them very, very well, and that's how you capture the essence of the characters, by taking real pictures of them and drawing uh, outlines of them and, and kind of capturing what makes them unique. Uh, but it, then it takes a, uh, a very traditional artist to do things like lip movements and head turns to make it look realistic, or at least realistic in the in the style of, uh, of filmation. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so so yeah. to answer to find, to answer the last part of your question, though, it takes a lot of effort, and we've actually. Yeah, had a lot of people ask us, well, why did, how did you do this? How did you do that? What it comes down to is we produced this cartoon very, very similar to how they produced it back in uh, the 70s, not with a light board and animation cells, but by people tr taking traditional uh, drawings in the computer, like in Photoshop. And if you know Photoshop, they, they can do layers. So you have an arm layer, you have a head layer, you have a mouth layer, you have an eye layer. True. Uh, we, we could have done this a lot simpler, but I think it, you know, by using something like Flash or something like that, but not all the artists were uh, versed in Flash. And to get that, yeah, I, was, you know, I was familiar with you know, compositing uh, in Adobe uh, After Effects and then timeline editing in Adobe Photoshop, or I'm sorry, Premiere. So what we did is we bring in all of these characters and we animate them by hand 
uh, in After Effects, which is, allows you to composite with layers, export that to a movie file just like you would have exported it to film, and then you edit it just like you'd edit any other uh, any other program where you you know use a timeline editor, cut, cut it here, do a transition here, things like that. But getting the the, the strange analog style of doing things like uh, there was always a how would you say it when when the, the view screen for example, focuses. You guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, you're on the view screen, and you want to change view from view A to view B. Mm-hmm. And it kind of has that wavy, wavy effect. Does that make sense? Kind of a yeah. wavy effect as it goes from one to the other. Okay. What was happening is that uh, to get the kind of effect that they would do, and this is one of the things I had to consult with Lou about, that, that when they would do these, these morphing or transition type things, it almost looked like there was something on the lens or something like that, they were moving across there. And he said that they ended up uh, in, when they were doing some of these practical shots, that they were actually putting Vaseline on the lens to get this kind of blur effect. Okay. And I, and when I, when they, when he told me that it came almost apparent to me on how I would do that in the, in the animated format or in the right. digital format right. where you, you, you mask off a section, you blur that section, you move that section across there. And I'll be, I'll be damned if I didn't get the exact effect I was looking for, uh, just by understanding how the original effect was done. Hmm. Hmm. But yeah, it, it, it comes down to basically doing these things almost like a traditional cartoon back in the seventies where you create each scene and then you, Edit it just like you would edit a normal film. Well, a couple questions here. Then we need to wrap up this interview. How many man hours have gone into animating this three-part uh, Starship Farragut <laughs> ep- episode? Do you have any idea? Uh, I do, and it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not really good. Somebody's asked me that, that whole thing themselves because they've actually wanted to do something similar. Uh, and... Eh, not that I wouldn't do it again. It's just that if I'd known from the beginning what I was in for, I, I might have not been so ambitious, but I'm glad I was because the end result is something that I know that unless somebody has the love and the dedication that they won't do themselves, so we'll have something unique that's out there. So the first episode is always going to take the longest because we started from ground zero with nothing but the original animated episode DVDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, you know, I'll be the first to admit that we... Uh, I won't say stole, but hijacked some of the backgrounds, reprovisioned them, you know, recolored them so that there's a little bit of consistency, and then used them in our animated episodes. So we we basically started off from scratch with nothing. So we we first did the characters, uh, developed the characters, got the stories written. So the first one always takes a long time. What I'm finding out though is even though it took about a year and a half to get from concept to uh, you know what you're what you're seeing this month, which is the release of Power Source. Uh, in just a week and a half, I was able to edit the first act and two pages of the next episode without any problem. So it becomes more of a, you know, a, a snowball effect. As I get more of these assets, as more of the characters are developed, as more of the processes and techniques are developed, uh, it's going to be quicker and quicker. Now, the, the obvious question that comes from that is, we have two in, that are in the pipeline. Is there going to be a third? If you would have asked me six months ago, I would be surprised if there was going to be one. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, 
but as I've as I've come and you know over this last week where I've you know had this lull and you know power source is pretty much done. I'm just waiting for a few more frames to get done here and there, and I've you know it only took me a week and a half to put you know the first act together. I think it's really uh, practical to be able to do another episode. But again, we're not going to just settle for something. We want to kind of go a step above. If I'm going to do it, it's going to be with a professional uh, writer. Hopefully, somebody that has uh, you know Star Trek experience or something that you know we can attach a name to. Obviously, that would get a little bit more press than just some guy off the street or, an, or a fan script. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then hopefully, they know people who would want to participate in this. You know, somebody maybe from Star Trek, but you know, more professional voice actors and uh, things like that. So, if we do it, it's going to be a step above what we're doing now. Absolutely. Now, where can fans who are listening to the show find the the Farragut episodes, the animated series episodes? Right. Well, so we're, we're, we have our own unique uh, URL that is separate from the StarshipFarragut.com website. You can still find them at the main Farragut site, StarshipFarragut.com. Um, but we've set up a, our own animated uh, website at Farragut-Animated.com. That's F-A-R-R-A-G-U-T dash a-N-I-M-A-T-E-D dot com, animated dot com. And you'll find all the, uh, the background on, you know, some of the things that we talked about tonight, uh, the episodes, some artwork that people have, uh, uh, you know, that, that some of our artists have created. Uh, and you can even buy stuff. You can buy t-shirts or, or whatever. Uh, we we are very careful not to cross the line on doing anything that violates Paramount's copyright. Right. You know, Starship Farragut is a unique uh, is a unique product uh, of Farragut Films, even though it's in the Star Trek universe. So a picture of John Carter doesn't violate anything in you know Paramount's canon. So right. we're allowed to do that. Uh, so you know, have people take a look at Farragut-Animated.com and. Uh, if you're interested in neo effects and any visual effects work outside of this animated stuff, our website is neo-fx.com. Neo-fx.com. Mm. Well, Mike, thank you so much for spending the last hour with us and chatting about uh, your work in the the Star Trek uh, fan film base, which you obviously support, uh, but also especially your work in the Farragut, the Farragut, and the, the animated series that they're doing. Great, great. Well, I appreciate the uh, the time. I know I can ramble on a lot about this stuff, but you know what? It's just because of the love of the product that we have for it, and uh, it's just it's been a great ride, and I hope it continues. Oh, absolutely. Well, we hope it continues. We yeah. look forward to seeing more episodes. Go ahead, Miles. I just um, I, I'm mire of, of of the uh, uh, episodes that Farragut's put out so far, so I'm continuing to look forward to whatever you guys uh, continue to put out. Yeah, great. Yeah, not to mention they're just such great guys to work with. So. Yeah, yeah, and that's the, that's one of the nice things about Farragut is that it's it's almost like a community of people who are, you know are all interested in the same things. Uh, it doesn't feel like a job. It doesn't feel like a business. It feels like just a bunch of fans that want to do stuff for the fans. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. We appreciate you uh, sitting down with us on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast and chatting about NeoFX and what you guys have been doing. Mm-hmm.